0: Hello, you're listening to Culture Call, the life and arts podcast from the Financial Times. I'm Lila Raptopoulos, an editor in New York. Coming up on today's show.
1: This is the culture that we live in now where... People are told, you're red and you're blue, and that means that you believe all of this and you believe all of that, and oh, by the way, you hate each other. And most of the time, I think, if you really dug in with people and you asked them, do you actually believe that gay people are deserving of less rights? Do you actually believe that all black people are criminals? Do you actually believe that immigrants should have their babies separated and taken away? No, right? But... Somehow you end up out there in your F-150 with the American flag flying off the back of your truck, slamming other cars off the road to harass a Biden-Harris bus. It's a very quick leap from casual, passive support to violent support.
0: Welcome to episode three in our special season of Culture Call. As you may know, this season we're doing something a bit different. First of all, my co-host Griselda Murray-Brown is on maternity leave. And also you may have noticed that the world is in flux. And we have a unique chance right now to reimagine. So I'm inviting cultural thinkers and FT colleagues on to do some of that reimagining with me. And I'm going to be honest with you, I have been anticipating this episode for months because I knew this would be a turning point. I knew that from October through December, there was going to be the time before the election and there was going to be the time after. Welcome to the time after. Or rather, welcome to the time in between. For some context, Tuesday was voting day. It was a long day. I had hoped for a decision Tuesday night, um, but instead all I got was a late night existential crisis. <laughs> On Wednesday, that was the morning after voting day. I sat down for my interview for this episode with the photographer, podcaster, artist, and activist IO Tillett Wright. The race was still very tight. I was definitely underslept, and we weren't close to a result. But we had learned one thing, and that was that this was not a landslide in either direction. That shouldn't have been surprising to me, but it was a harsh reminder that we still live in a deeply divided country, and that's not a problem any election is going to suddenly solve. I'm recording this now on Thursday, late afternoon, in my living room closet. Votes are still being counted, Joe Biden is quickly gaining ground, and Donald Trump is calling to stop vote counting in several states. So, now that that scene is set, let me introduce you to Till It Right. I first discovered I.O.'s work through his cult podcast hit, The Ballad of Billy Balls. It came out last year, and honestly, it is one of my favorite audio projects ever. The podcast is a 13-part series about the punk rock scene in New York in the late 1970s, early 80s, and a musician named Billy Balls. Billy was murdered, and we don't know who did it, and we don't know why. The show is evocative. It has gorgeous, grungy, kind of disgusting, very deliberate sound design, and it brings you straight into a whole world. Here's a clip. Coming around... 40th street and 10th avenue where you take the curve from the Greyhound bus station with and you see the curtains everybody has the windows open you know coming in in the
1: thickest stickiest sweatiest part of the summer is the height of hell's kitchen can hear all the music coming out and the music is plumped and
0: voluptuous by the wet humidity in the air and the sound is in the air, what is hanging in the voluptuousness of the
1: sticky humidity and the stickiness and the
0: sweat. That woman speaking is Io's mom, and her voice is still lodged in my brain a year later. She's pretty unforgettable. Billy Balls was her one true love, and as Io puts it, "...the tragic loss of Billy gave way to a lifelong grief in my mom and a trickle-down of explosiveness that defined my childhood." So that makes this podcast a lot more than a true crime story. It's also about family and forgiveness and love and where we come from. The podcast was an extension of Io's 2016 memoir, Darling Days, which chronicles his childhood as a kid growing up in the Bowery in New York. A lot of I.O.'s work really redefines gender and sexuality, and it shows us how categories like straight and gay and LGBTQ are really limiting. They're bulging and struggling to encompass us all. That's important work in a time where so much is shifting so quickly. In the memoir, I.O. tells a story of being six years old and turning to his dad to say, I'm not your daughter anymore. I'm your son. His father's response was, sure, okay. When Io decided he felt like a girl again at 14, that was cool with his parents, too. You know, sexuality and gender is a moving, breathing thing, and its definition is changing. I see Io as an early product of that understanding and someone who's really helping to give language to that change. Io recently came out with a book of 10,000 photographs of queer America. It's called Self Evident Truths, and it's the culmination of a decade long project that took him to all 50 states. When that book dropped, I really felt like, okay, this is who I want to talk to about where America is right now. The book itself is heavy. It's maybe five pounds, and it feels like the world's biggest yearbook. It has 10,000 black and white portraits against black backgrounds, it's just page after page of people all of whom identify as in the gray. The only thing they have in common is none of them consider themselves 100% cis and 100% straight. The book is organized chronologically, so it's also a timeline. And as the largest collection of photos of queer, trans, and non-binary people there is, it's also sort of an archive. So I'm happy to have Io on as a person who understands something about the pulse of America, who can help me explore what's possible now, and who really can help me explore what's possible now right after voting day. Whether you know Io's work or not, this is one of the best conversations about the state of America that I've had in a long time. So I hope you find it thought-provoking too. Last thing is a quick language warning. There is some cursing because a lot happened this week and it was hard to not. Okay, here's me and Iotilet Wright. Hi, Iotilet right. Uh welcome to Culture Call.
1: Hi. So happy to be here.
0: First of all, I really just want to thank you for coming on the show. I'm in New York. You're you're in California, right? I'm in and LA. I personally didn't sleep very much last night. I don't know about you.
1: Me either. <laughs> me either.
0: Yeah. So it's just an inconclusive day and um I appreciate that you've taken some time to help process it.
1: Oh, I'm so happy to be here. I think we all need a little bit of, it's going to be okay in our lives today. So <laughs> <laughs> happy to be here.
0: Thanks. Um, I guess my first question is just kind of, how are you feeling? You said, it's going to be okay. That's nice to hear. Why do you feel that way?
1: You know, first of all, I think it's too close to call. Um, and I yeah. think that one of the healthiest things that I did this year for myself was I deleted Twitter partially because i think it's so it's like completely untenable for the human system to just maintain that level of emotional yo-yoing just the constant like especially with a president who has no adherence to the truth whatsoever it's just like mm. it's it's emotional suicide to be like up to the second on things that are not even facts so yeah. um i I'm also like learned from the second George W. Bush election that like you can never count on anything in the United States except corruption and stupidity. So, yeah, I'm not entirely surprised, but I'm also heartbroken, but also it's going to be okay. It's like it's just a soup of things. I feel exhausted, to be honest with you.
0: Yeah, I feel I feel pretty similar. Like, I, I feel that um, we knew this was going to be close deep down. And um, I personally crave something decisive. But the fact that this race is tight is like not a surprising picture of the country we've been living in. I guess it's sort of another lesson that people here can kind of live in the same country and have radically different experiences of reality. <laughs> and, and I'm curious from you, like, you know, you you put this book out, Self-Evident Truths, which I love. And for the project, you were all over America and in 50 states over the past 10 years. Um, I feel like you might know something we don't. <laughs> I'm I'm curious, like, are you surprised? Um, yeah.
1: You know, um, I learned a lot about this country and i learned a lot about my own bullshit from traveling to every single state like i'm from new york i'm from third street in the bowery which like you know for anybody listening who doesn't know what that means it's like the heart of weird artsy downtown culture music punk rock heroin crack cocaine drug dealing avant-garde culture queer shit and like Mm. i grew up steeped in that so my journey to fighting for equality was there was never there was like no leap to be made from where I come from to where I am but uh, Mm. the journey to queer rights was a kind of like discovery of the fact that I was a second-class citizen in my own country because I grew up in a place where what I was was normal and Mm. part of the problem with that is all of the miss the the tropes that i was fed about the south and about the bible belt and about the midwest and my mom like vehemently hates yuppies and vehemently hates like any kind of capitalism my father is like a deep intellectual anti-capitalist radical who was like i could go on for hours about like the the weird hardwiring that i have politically um <laughs> which i stray from a little bit but In traveling to Oklahoma, one of the earliest things that we did in 2012 was we went on a tour of the South. And Mm. arriving in Oklahoma, arriving in Mississippi, arriving in Tennessee, I was confronted with my own bullshit about what I thought the South was, of course, because when you aren't exposed to things and you don't experience things firsthand, you default to stereotypes and tropes. And I feel a lot of that going on in this country right now. And I, I know that the Republican, but really the Trump strategy, the MAGA strategy is to dig into that, to drill into people's lack of exposure to each other and cultivate the fear that's there in the stereotypes about each other and say, these are this type of person and over there is this type of person. And like, with like just the nail scratch into the scholarship around dehumanization this is an age old tactic it's it's been going on for since humans have existed and it's led to the yeah. exact same atrocities every time so you know i think there's an argument for secession to be made at this moment <laughs> in time <laughs>
0: Can you give an example of a time when you started going to the South where you were like, oh, we're more similar or that where your sort of like your entrenched beliefs were changed?
1: Yeah, I mean, like I, I went to the South when I, I, so I'm trans and I presented as like a masculine looking girl person. Maybe you would assume I was a lesbian if you didn't know better. I don't know. But In 2012, we had a a tour stop in Jackson, Mississippi, and I didn't even get out of the car. I was just like, keep it moving, keep driving. I don't feel safe here. All of the Confederate flags and, you know, whatever. I did a TED Talk in 2012, and the fundamental premise, it's called Fifty Shades of Gay, but the fundamental premise of it is that familiarity is the gateway drug to empathy. When we become familiar with something, we can learn to care for it. And... It wasn't that I wanted to care for Trump supporters, but in 2016, I wanted to understand what the fuck was going on. Like, it felt like the twilight zone. And I realized, based on the way algorithms work and based on the way information siloing works in the social media age, I wasn't exposed to the actual opinions of my quote-unquote opposition. But – um mm-hmm you know between 2010 and and now when i started this project and and finished it it was this great opportunity in the united states to see how a lack of familiarity can destroy empathy and how that can be really consciously manipulated which is exactly what the trump administration is doing they're getting people mm-hmm. who don't even necessarily know what they believe to just feel like I have to fight for my team. And my team mm-hmm. says this, and I'm not going to investigate it. I'm just going to go out and kill for it. And that is when shit gets really, really dangerous. So I'm yeah out here pushing for discernment. I'm out here pushing analytical thought, question everything. I'm anti-groupthink. Yeah. That's my like big... I mean, I'm sitting here wearing a Black Lives Matter shirt saying that I'm anti-groupthink, but... <laughs> I find that actually at the root of BLM, if you get into it, the leadership are really discerning thought leaders and scholars, and they have yeah. theories and e- ethos, you know, and morals. So anyway.
0: So you started this project 10 years ago, and now it's a book. It was in response to One World, and it's 10 years later, and the expectation would be that we would be in a very, a more inclusive world. Um It's, you know, it's debatable. We were (laughs) Um, for a minute there. We were for a minute. So what world is it coming into now? What was it trying to do then and what is it doing now?
1: You know, that's a very interesting framing for a question I've been asked many times, but not that way. And I really appreciate that. Um, The world that it came into was a world with almost no legal protections for queer people. The term queer wasn't even what was being used at that point. It was just LGBT and it's grown to LGBTQIA plus plus X2 or whatever that I can't even keep up to be completely frank with you. At that point, it was before the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. It was before there was gay marriage. It was before there were any workplace protections on a federal level and you could legally be fired for being anything other than 100% straighter or So that became kind of the framing for this. So uh, it just got me thinking about like, who are the people that are voting against our rights and what do they believe? Where does their impetus come from? The conclusion that I came to was that it was fear-based. And what did they fear? Oh, they fear that we're going to rape their children. They fear like trans people in bathrooms want to... I don't even know, right. but there th- it's all right. misinformation. It's all tropes about stuff left over from the AIDS era where the publicity was that we're perverts and we want to subvert and and destroy the the institution of family
0: mm-hmm.
1: I had this fantasy of people being able to talk to each other, people being able to communicate with each other. And since you yeah. can't invite, you know, three hundred million people to a dinner party with each other, I thought, okay, what if I photograph as many of these people as I can get to and put them in front of those people and see what it makes people feel and like confront them with the simplicity of just a human being, you know, a tender hearted human being. So we made it so that like anyone who wanted to participate could without any qualification other than that you are anything other than 100% straight or cis. Because those are the people who can be fired in 37 states for that. And we want to show what those people look like. And if the person said, yes, that's me, then that's it. They got photographed. And by the time I did my TED talk in 2012, I had photographed, I think, 1,700 people or something, and Mm -hmm. quickly realized that I was getting a lot of white hipsters. And if I was going to represent, Anything of consequence or any kind of actual document of a community, I was going to have to do a much larger number. My initial thought was like, oh, maybe two or 3,000. And it was, a, oh, no, well, I have to do 10,000 and I have to do every single state so that every type of human has the opportunity to participate in this. Right. And that took 10 years.
0: Yeah. So that was sort of the world in which you you conceived of and started this project. And now it's the books coming out here at this time. And who is it for? What is it for? What What's different about the goal?
1: There's two simultaneous goals of this project. And if COVID hadn't killed everything this summer, the goal was to do a massive installation of all 10,000 portraits, six foot tall by five mm. foot wide on the mall in front of the Washington Monument, the National Mall. Wow. Um,
0: oh, I'm sorry.
1: It's such a bummer, <laughs> dude. It's such a bummer. But
0: such a bummer.
1: The truth is the world that we're coming into, the world that I created it in, I thought that this was the civil rights fight of my generation, and I was wrong. And I'm mm. happy to say that. The civil rights fight of my generation is for black lives. But the world for queer people that were this is coming into was beautiful for a minute there. You know, we had eight years of Obama and we had eight years of progress and everything was quote unquote moving in the right direction. And now everything is rolling backwards. So mm-hmm. while we don't know what happened last night or yesterday yet, either way, it has revealed itself that half of this country believes that we don't deserve the same rights, that our health and our livelihoods are not worth protecting. And in those moments where I think about the young ones, I think about the little babies, the little queer nine-year-old who's just figuring out that he's gay or figuring out that they're non-binary or figuring out that she's trans or whatever. Mm -hmm. And the fear and the, the immense pain of feeling different and feeling ostracized like it's already hard enough to have your body like grow boobs and your voice drop and hair and smell and sex and whatever but then also to feel like you're in the wrong body or you're attracted to the person that will think you're gross or whatever it's really scary so then you add to that the television telling you that half of this country thinks that you're sick. I wanna intervene. I wanna be the thing that like slides between that kid and the Mm. message that they're getting from the world and be like, hold on, here are 10,000 people who are just like you and they're your family and they have historically always had to bond together as family when the world told them that they were sick. You're gonna be okay. And if your family of origin is not down with it, when you can get out of there, we're here. You know, so that's half of it. And the other half of it is for people who think that we are a certain thing. So when somebody comes out and their conservative family is like, you're going to die of AIDS, you're going to have a deviant lifestyle, whatever, you know, I've heard stories of people presenting this book to their family and being like, well, look at all these doctors and nurses and lawyers and movie stars and fill in the blank. Whatever thing appeals to you here are ministers, you know, whatever. Right. I hope that it can serve as a home for queer people and as an eye opener for straight people who think that they don't know any queer people. Because also, girl, like, we drive your kids to school in the morning and cook their food and, like, save your life in the hospital. So, like, yeah, time to wake up and smell the queer all around you.
0: (laughs) I guess one of the things that I really like about your work is that it is helping people with the definition of queerness um, and helping people broaden the definition, sort of, LGBTQIA+ the sort of the, the 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 growing length of that of that category and you called sexuality a poor binding agent hmm. uh, which I liked um can you say a little bit about that
1: Sure yeah i mean who you want to fuck has no bearing on what you like to do or what your morals are it, they're just not connected you know two people can yeah. like to have sex with each other or the same type of sex or whatever, and live completely opposite lives. So to me, um, the idea of queerness as a lifestyle is just, it doesn't hold up.
0: The other thing I was thinking around this sort of poor binding agent, um, especially watching the news last night, uh, is that like so many categories are poor binding agents. Like they were talking on the news about Hispanic voters or the black vote or suburban women. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I just like, what? How do you feel about categorization? Like, I just feel like a lot of your work is about identity and I'm struggling to figure out what even makes an identity anymore and how skeptical we should be about all of these um, boxes.
1: (laughs) Deeply. Deeply, deeply, deeply skeptical. Um, I think two of the greatest dangers that we face right now are groupthink and misinformation. And those two Mm -hmm. things coupled together and played against each other is a recipe for catastrophe. This is the culture that we live in now where people are told you're red and you're blue. And that means that you believe all of this and you believe all of that. And oh, by the way, you hate each other. And most of the time, I think if you really dug in with people and you asked them, let's actually like decipher this for a second. Do you actually believe that gay people are deserving of less rights? Do you actually believe that all black people are criminals? Do you actually believe that immigrants, you know, should have their babies separated and taken away? No, right? But somehow you end up out there in your F-150 with the American flag flying off the back of your truck, slamming other cars off the road to harass a Biden-Harris bus. It's a very quick leap from casual passive support to violent support. And I have the exact same problem with the political left, and I have the mm-hmm. exact same problem with cancel culture and Twitter dog piles and uh celebrity culture and the media. We get into these things where people are like, "Well, I heard da 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 on YouTube and therefore this motherfucker needs to be taken down with a hashtag." And you're like, "Dude, That's not even fact-based. That's not evidence-based. That's some idiot in their bedroom making a video about their opinion, and you just took it as evidence and tried to ruin somebody's life with it. Like, what the fuck are we doing? Right. That podcast, Rabbit Hole, by the New York Times, like, to me, that's like, that and the the movie The Social Dilemma is the most Mm -hmm. pertinent
0: Um, so what do we do? What do you do? I mean, one question that I've been thinking a lot about is like, everybody is trying to, they're like, everybody's looking for purpose. They can't focus at work. They know there's a problem. It can be hard to identify what the problem is. It can be hard to like, figure out what effective activism is Mm. and how to make change. Um, what's your answer to that for you or for others?
1: I mean, I can only tell you for me. And I've had a kind of really revelatory year in that arena this year because um, I've always supported Black Lives Matter and I've always really vehemently believed that without black liberation, there's no queer liberation or anything else. I got really close to this person, um, Jenea Future Khan, who is the international spokesperson for Black Lives Matter, and they're Black non-binary immigrant intellectual scholar. And they talk about this idea of it's about who you sit with, and it's Mm. the same concept of familiarity creates empathy. And Mm. I had a personal shift from what I thought was a more standard career in entertainment of like I have this idea and I'd be the host and I you know I have this idea for a business and I would own it and whatever to a more community based and even when I say community based like I immediately think of like granola and Birkenstocks like that's not what I'm talking <laughs> about it's a it's a fundamental approach to ambition. That is, Mm -hmm. now when I have an idea, how can I share the wealth that that idea creates? How can I amplify somebody else? It's the idea of sending the elevator back down once you reach the top. It's the idea of Mm -hmm. giving away the keys to the castle, because Mm. I think what all of us have been doing is reposting, hashtagging, sending money or whatever, but really not changing the way we exist on a daily basis. And it's not getting better, it's getting worse. So I think until we start to fundamentally shift our like major goals, in terms of what we want for our families, where we wanna live, who we wanna have at our dinner table, how we want to make money, what our ideas of success are. In America, where everything is built around that, what is your career, who are your friends, what does your family structure look like, and what does your bank account look like? You have to inject your activism into your pursuit of those things or nothing is actually
0: changing. Um do you feel hopeful in the long run that that will happen?
1: I feel like America was an experiment, is an experiment that right now is yielding really hideous ugly results. Mm-hmm. And I think and think and think and think and intellectualize and intellectualize and study and question and wonder all the time if there is a way for the fundamental premise of the united states to be anything other than what it is for it to result in anything other than what it is extreme capitalism extreme freedom of speech extreme freedom we have a 50-50 split ideologically in this country. We hate each other. Yeah. So something is going to shift. You can feel the violence in the air. You can feel that we're one step away from somebody whipping out their AR-15 and causing havoc. They do it all the time. Mm -hmm. And I have to be in acceptance of the things I cannot change, which is this country has built itself to this point. And I really think you have to know where you can have impact and where you are slamming your precious head into a wall. We have to value um, rest and intentionality as much as we value rage. Mm. Where we point our energies and what we work towards has to be balanced in a sustainable way.
0: Is there anything positive that's possible now that we've seen so many cracks in our system exposed that seemed totally impossible before 2020?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm I'm um the first one to find the thread of hope in the quilt of nightmare, you know, but yes, there there is an awareness um you know, the Black Spring, as they call it, the 2020 of Mm. Black Lives Matter, the combination of people being stuck at home during COVID and, like, forced to just interact with their phones and forced to pay attention, there used to be a lack of awareness and ignorance, to be frank, that is harder now when you have a table full of only white people, somebody at that table is aware of that fact when they might not have been before. You know, we can't unsee the things that we've learned.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I'd actually love to go back to where we started this conversation about your childhood. Um, In your memoir, Mm -hmm. Darling Days, and in The Ballad of Billy Balls, you paint a very vivid picture of your childhood, and you described it as actually sort of a sheltered environment to grow up in because it was free of bigotry. It was like full of life, very diverse, tons of types of people. Mm. And um, that must so inform the way you're experiencing everything right now. I mean, can you kind of tell people a little bit about how you grew up?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I mentioned earlier, like I grew up in the East Village of the 80s and 90s, which means... I grew up in the place where everybody left somewhere else because they were too weird to be there to come to my neighborhood to make art or to exist outside of societal norms. So everything that the conservative world thought was weird was my normal, which creates this (laughs) like inverse – experience of normalcy and inverse upbringing in terms of what is acceptable societal social behavior my mom is an avant-garde performance artist and poet and general like societal outsider weirdo avant-garde kooky dooky loony and my dad (laughs) is a set designer for stage and film and theater and uh, ballet he made no wave music in the 80s and like both of them really sought out avant-garde people, people who thought really far outside of the, the normal, quote, heavy air quotes around normal systems, which meant that I grew up questioning those systems. And mm. my mom, with the exception of my dad and Billy Balls, the person I made the podcast about who was murdered, never dated white yeah. people, ever, and our block, we, you know, I grew up across the street from a 700 person men's shelter in, I was born in 1985. So, like, you know, New York was dead broke and like downtown was like a bomb zone. It looked like Beirut yeah. when I was growing up. And all, most of the men in the men's shelter were black and Latinx. And that meant that my daily. Exposure my daily sense of familiarity was with people of color. We lived in low-income housing and it was heavily Puerto Rican and Dominican I went to school in the West Village. So I would walk through It's like Stonewall was on my path to school every day and it's Mm. this historically gay revolutionary gay neighborhood so you're seeing drag queens coming home from work at seven o'clock in the morning as you're going to school. And like my mom took me to the gay pride parade and we went to the early wig stocks and saw RuPaul before RuPaul was RuPaul. Like this was the world that I was exposed to. But that world set me up for, you know, if your upbringing is your hardwiring, I'm hardwired to be more comfortable around people of color, which is very unusual for white people. And yeah. my dad is Jewish. So, you know, like the, the, the normalcy for me is many different shades of existence being equally valuable. And to mm. me, that is also fundamentally what America is built on and what being American is about. So, yeah, I mean, the, the Ballad the, yeah. the ballad of Billy Balls was, was a podcast that I made last year that was an investigation into the murder of the love of my mother's life who we started out thinking had been killed by the police two weeks after he uh, was shot. He died really unexpectedly in this strange kind of suspicious way and... and His body was very mysteriously disappeared, and then he she never had gotten to say goodbye to him for 37 years. So I set out to solve the case, and I did. And yeah, it was like a you know punk rock look at crime
0: solving, which I had never done before. Why did you make it, um, like why did you put it through the true crime lens? That story, I I like that you did. I'm just curious because. It I was, love. I mean, true it started crime. about true crime, and then suddenly it was about forgiveness and love, and you know, it was about
1: we a lot more. Thought it was gonna be just a true crime show. <laughs> like,
0: oh, interesting.
1: We first of all, we made that show like we made it every week as it was coming out. The whole thing unfolded as it was being made. Which now, looking back, mm. I'm like, that's. Fucking insane, but um, <laughs> it's
0: wild. As yeah, someone who makes a podcast. It's, like, it's, I
1: it's completely untenable Man. and bonkers. I think when we talk about crime, even the term "crime" is so reductive for like what happens in the world where people do things that are not legal. <laughs> I find that a big part of my driving politic is about. The criminal justice system and the unfair way that it's stacked against certain races and certain classes, specifically poor people, and Mm -hmm. mental illness. Um, All of those things are rampant in my family, with the exception of the fact that everyone involved in that story was white, which really is very particular and really frames the experience of that story. But otherwise, there's a lot of mental illness, there's drug addiction, and there's poverty, so i I am, um forever fascinated with true crime stuff, but I want to always go deeper. Why did this happen? How did we get here? Who are you? How did we end up here? So I wrote this book, yeah. you know, it came out in 2016 about my childhood, my life from zero to 22. And I mean, spoiler alert: my mom doesn't get any parenting awards in that book <laughs> you know it really like lampoons her mothering but what it doesn't do is explore how she ended up in psychotic rages smashing things mm. screaming how she ended up a broken person and yeah my understanding my whole life was that what led her to that place was partially this loss very traumatic rupturous loss of the love of her life and i felt if i was gonna tell the one story i had to be fair to her and go back and tell the why and so Mm. that's where the ballad of billy balls came from it was going to be a book and then it became a podcast because i met zach stewart pontier who makes crime town or I know I knew him from before, but we had lunch and he was like, wait, what? That book sounds like an incredible podcast. He's a punk musician and the audio, like what? Yeah. And immediately it was clear, oh shit, that has to be a podcast. So it still will be a book, I think. And there's, uh, I think I'm allowed to tell you this, but it got bought to be made into a TV show.
0: Great. When? What can you tell us about it?
1: Uh. I can tell you that COVID is a motherfucker <laughs> and complicates everything, but we're working on it. It's it's forward moving. I can tell you that
0: much. Awesome. Um, my last question uh, for you is it's a very interesting time for culture and mm. the things that we have the patience and the energy to consume is maybe way different than it used to be. <laughs> and so I'm curious what sorts of things have been speaking to you. Mm. right now what you've been watching listening to reading
1: yeah um there's a show called swindled that is just a (laughs) guilty pleasure and it's about cons and it's some dude he's just he says he calls himself a concerned citizen and it's an independent podcast that he just you know maybe makes it in his garage i don't know but I love hey. it. And it's like every week I can't wait till he puts out a new episode. Cool. There's a book Thank that you. I always recommend whenever mm-hmm. anyone asks me what, for a recommendation of a book. It's called The General Theory of Love. And it is mm. at least 10 years old or something. But it's a bunch of neuroscientists got together with a bunch of psychologists and tried to make a cogent argument for or explanation for feelings and the heart. It's an incredible look at attachment and an incredible look at why we care about the things that we care about and how we love Mm. people and separate from people and why we uh, feel fucking nuts when we go through a breakup or a loss. And I think it's just a really, really helpful look at who we are and why we are who we are. So I recommend that. Thank you. Yeah.
0: Um, Ayo thank you so much for being on the show I really appreciate it
1: Thank you for having me this was so fun
0: That's it for this week There won't be an FT voice on this episode It's just so close to the election And we wanted to give ourselves and you A little bit of time to digest the results so next week, keep an eye on the feed for a special bonus episode with the brilliant historian, professor, author extraordinaire, and FT Weekend contributor, Simon Shama. I've left a few great articles by him in the show notes. Let me know what you thought of the show, the election, or even what you're reading to help get you through the last months of this very strange year. You can email the show at culturecall at ft.com. I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Lila Rapp, and the show is on Twitter at FT Culture Call. If you like the podcast, I also have a little request for you. Think of one or two friends who you think would really like it too, and just let them know about it. Or post this episode in your Instagram stories. Or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. This all makes a really huge difference and helps new listeners discover the show. So thank you. I've been Lila Raptopoulos. Culture Call is produced by Lena Prestwood at Scenery Studios. And our music is composed by Tristan Cassell-Delavoie.